Well, hello and welcome everybody again. I think we are on our 56th episode of Taking You Back to Seminary. We are so glad you have joined us. I went back again to my seminary notes and we are helping to educate you to be a fuller understanding of your Catholic faith and why we Catholics do what we do because often we are told what we do is wrong. It's not biblical. And today we have a great example for you. How many times as Catholics have we heard we worship statues? Um, you know, what is the use of scapulars, medals, um, crucifixes, rosaries? These are all things we call sacramentals. And you saw that on the title slide, and we're going to give you what you need to know and to be able to answer those questions. So God bless all of you. Today we'll be talking, are these sacramentals idolatry, super superstition, or are they grace? Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send the Holy Spirit down upon us, and through the sacraments that we are prepared in our hearts by the way of the sacramentals, we ask for your blessing, and we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we're grateful again. Now, I want to start with some words I found from Cy Kellett and Sean McAfee that I thought did a really good job of taking this and giving us ways to defend sacramentals, not as superstition, not as magic. Now, what are sacramentals? All right, they are blessings, exorcisms, and objects of devotion. Now, let's take a look at our first slide. What is a sacramental? All right, there you see a rosary, a miraculous medal, a scapular, a holy water font. We're gonna be talking about all of those today. Now, people in the church for the first 1500 years were primarily illiterate. So how did the church teach its faith? You couldn't hand a Bible to people for the most part, a thousand years ago and say, read this. We did it because the church knew most people were illiterate. So they brought our faith through icons, images, all kinds of other what we call sacramentals. Now, they can be beautiful, but what is most important is what it represents. We don't worship the statues or the images. We have to be careful. These sacramentals are blessed items. When an item is blessed, it becomes a sacramental. And so this is what we need to do. Now, relics, on the other hand, I did a talk on that before in my saints talks. They are already holy based on the life of the saint. And so we have to see that this is biblical. Well, Father, what do you mean sacramentals are biblical? That's just a Catholic thing. No, Abraham was blessed by who? Melchizedek. And he received a blessing. They're abundant in the Bible. So are exorcisms, right? Exorcisms are also sacramentals. Now, here's something that's cool. People think that the ultimate in the Catholic faith is an exorcist and an exorcism, that that's the highest form of fighting the devil. Do you know that an exorcism is a sacramental, which means the sacrament of confession is greater? The sacrament of confession, by the fact that it's a sacrament, is greater than an exorcism. That's incredible. 
people don't know this. And so we don't have, we really don't need to have exorcisms before Jesus came and gave the authority to the apostles. That means he gave us the priests, the authority, all right? Preparing people. What's the purpose of a sacramental? To prepare you for the sacraments. This is what we're going to talk about today. It's an object of devotion. Remember the woman in the Bible that said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, she was cured. Now it was through Jesus, of course, handkerchief of Paul. People were cured through Paul's handkerchief, which resulted in a healing Acts chapter 19. Now, even something like holy water, which people, non-Catholics, just totally criticize, is in the Bible, the book of Chronicles. It says priests should or will sweep up the dust from the floor and put it in the water and bless it. Make it holy to heal the people. This is in the book of Chronicles. All right, Protestants, they drive around with that little fish on their, uh, on their bumpers, right? You see that, you know, the little fish that has the, the tail and the, uh, like a figure, almost a complete figure eight, and that's the symbol of Christianity. So these Protestants drive around with this little fish on the back of their car, but yet they criticize us for sacramentals, all right? Protestants, you're not supposed to be having graven images. We're going to talk a lot about that. They say that that's it. But good, did God tell us that we can't have graven images or worship them? In fact, God commanded that we have images such as carved angels on the ark, the cherubim, the bronze serpent on the pole of Moses. We'll get to it. Now, the thought is that sacramentals can forgive sins. No, they don't. It prepares us for grace. So here's the only technical I'm going to give you today. Let's look at our next slide. What is a sacramental? This is right from the catechism or sacrosanctum uh, concilium. They signify effects, particularly of a spiritual nature, which are obtained by the intercession of the church. And by them, we are disposed to receive the chief effect of the sacraments, which is sanctifying grace. All right, bottom line, everybody, you want to go to heaven, so do I. You got to have sanctifying grace. Where does that come from? The sacraments. But does everybody who walks up this aisle, and you've all seen them, if you haven't been one yourself, or that's your reverence. Are you receiving the fullness of the grace of that sacrament when you're not properly disposed? No. So sacramentals are a way to predispose us to receive the sacraments. Now, I've already done talks on all the sacraments, but we would be remiss if we didn't say, now, how do we open our hearts to make sure we get all the grace in the sacraments and sacramentals can help? All right, now, with the sacramentals, they point us to the promises of the sacraments. We do not guarantee that they will work. It is faith. They help us learn and they help us in our faith so that God can then work miracles. Remember the Bible said even Jesus couldn't work miracles because of the lack of the faith of the people. So it's because of Jesus's merits on the cross, yes. It's not the sacramental itself, no. 
These are authorized by the church because the church has the authority. The church was given that by Jesus. Now, let's take a look at one other slide with a definition. This is Catechism 1669. Now, who can bless? This is one of the most common questions we got when the pandemic started. We did a um, seal the door posts and we said, everybody hang the image of divine mercy on your door. Let's read who can bless it. It says, sacramentals derive from the baptismal priesthood. That means you, you're baptized. Every baptized person is called to be a blessing and to bless. I bet you didn't know that. You can bless, but hence, Lay people may preside at certain blessings. The more a blessing concerns, however, ecclesial and sacramental life, the more is, is its administration reserved to the priest, deacons, bishops, the ordained ministry. All right, what are we saying here? When the pandemic hit and you couldn't get to a priest, when the pandemic hit, the churches were closed. Crazy, that's a whole nother topic. Church should never close. Bishops, as Reagan said, tear down that wall. Bishops, open up those churches. And so what happened was people were writing saying, Father, I can't bless this image. I don't have access to a priest. In this case, you could have blessed that image yourself by virtue of your baptism. You are priest, prophet, and king. And as by virtue of your baptismal priesthood, you can bless certain items in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, when it's larger items, significant items, like a blessing of holy water, solemn blessing, and exercise salt, you can't. But certain ones, like an image, you can. And so that's why we were trying to teach people to do during the pandemic. Now, any priest can impart blessings, but there are some blessings only the Pope or bishops can do. So on other items, a deacon can, but he can't make up his own blessing. You ever have a priest bless something? And he's just like, oh, yeah, Mother Mary, we ask you, intercede. Uh, come down through the intercession of the saints, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. A priest can do that. Hopefully he means it reverently. But a deacon has to follow the prescribed written of the blessing itself. Now, no one can perform exorcisms, however, upon a possessed person, not even a priest, unless he has permission of the bishop. But you could do minor exorcisms, prayers of deliverance, prayers of unbinding. And we'll talk about that. All right, next, let's look at the next slide. There's some icons, images. These are classic. This is the one that we get beat up all the time as Catholics. Now, because we have statues in our churches or images like you see on your screen, icons, some say we are violating God's commandment. Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5, Father says you should not have graven images. You got to keep reading for the purpose of worshiping them. Calling Catholics idolaters is not accurate. It's a misunderstanding. Just because we have images of Christ or saints doesn't mean we worship them. Now, you all know that. God forbade the worship of them, but he did not forbid the use of them. 
People are like, what father? Yeah, he actually commanded. We talked about this. He commanded that um, cherubim be carved angels on the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 25. Do you know David? Who built the temple? It wasn't David, it was his son, Solomon. But David had a plan for the temple that included statues of angels. Similar, Ezekiel 41, listen to this, described graven images carved in the temple he was shown in a vision. Quote, on the walls of the inner room and on the nave were carved likeness of cherubim angels. Now, what about using these? All right. During a plague of serpents back in the desert of the Exodus with Moses, a plague of serpents was sent to punish the Israelites, and God told Moses to act. Let's look at our next slide. See what Moses is doing there? He's holding up an image of a bronze serpent. Now, Moses made the serpent and set it on a pole so that if the serpent bit anybody, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. It foreshadowed the cross. This was Numbers 21. Now, here's what's fascinating. God told Moses that the people had to look at the bronze statue, not just be in its presence. Look at it, to look at the serpent, to be healed. This shows the statues were used ritually. They were used in ritual, not merely as decorations. God didn't tell Moses, you know, just put it in the corner there and let the people continue milling around like we do in the church. In fact, we use statues less and images less than the Israelites in this capacity. Now, this is fascinating to me. Catholics use statues, paintings, artistic devices to obviously recall what is depicted God. Now, it's like looking at a photograph to recall your mother who passed away. You look at the picture of your mother and it recalls to you who she was, stories. It's what we do with the saints. And in the early church, statues were useful because as I said, people were illiterate. Most Protestants have pictures of Jesus, right? And other Bible pictures they use on Sunday school. And we commemorate things that they do too. You know, if a Protestant has a nativity scene, Right here every year on Christmas, we put the statues of Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus, the wise men. So do the Protestants. And so they do. When people begin to adore a statue as God, then you have a problem. But having it as a reminder is not a worship. You guys know this. But one person wrote to me and says, but Father, where you draw the line is where you Catholics bow and kneel. And I read that letter and I went, hmm. So I called one of our theologians and I said, you know, that's a good point. We Catholics do bow and kneel. So wait a minute now, I can kind of see where that would look like we're worshiping. Because it'd be one thing just to say, hey, isn't that a great statue as you're looking at it? So yeah, that reminds me of Jesus. But when you bow and kneel to it, all of a sudden, uh-oh, are you now worshiping it? And here's what I was told. I think this is fascinating. Some people quote Deuteronomy 5.9 that says, you shall not bow down to them. 
99% of us Catholics don't know how to answer that. If Deuteronomy 5.9 says we are not to bow down for statues, what is going on here? Again, God means in worship. But bowing can be used as a posture, not only in worship, but other things. This is what the theologian told me. Though bowing is used in worship, not all bowing is worship. And he used the case of Japan. When I worked in the US auto industry in Detroit, we used to have Japanese engineers and businessmen come and we would meet with them. The first thing they did to me, you have your business card, and please, when you take a business card from a Japanese, you just don't toss it aside. It's very honorable to them. So when you would meet a Japanese businessman, they came before you and they bowed. That was not worship. They weren't worshiping me for crying out loud. They didn't even know me. And they weren't certainly gonna tell you they were worshiping me. Probably they thought, who's this ridiculous young American kid? He's not gonna know anything, but they still bowed. Bowing doesn't necessarily mean worship, all right? A person could kneel before a king. You kneel before a king without worshiping him as a god. That's the thing. A Catholic kneeling isn't worshiping the statue or even praying to it, surprisingly, any more than a Protestant who kneels with a Bible in his hand is worshiping the Bible or praying to the Bible. I have seen Protestants with Bibles in their hands, on their knees, holding the Bible. Are they worshiping that Bible? No. Are they praying to that Bible? No. So this was a great answer to me about bowing. All right, what about the second commandment? Boy, we hear this one all the time. You Catholics eliminated the second commandment. The second commandment, the first commandment is you should have no God other than the Lord our God. And the second commandment is you should have no graven images. You Catholics violate this. Man, when I went to seminary for the first time, that was one of the first questions I asked when I got to seminary. How do we answer that, professor? We're all the time accused of being told that we eliminated the second commandment. The first being, there's only one God, you worship him. And second is you do not have graven images. Catholics took it out. Nah, here's what I learned in seminary. For us, the first commandment, yes, is listed as you shall have no other gods before me. That's Exodus 20, verse 3. And the second is you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain, Exodus 20, verse 7. That's our first two commandments. No other gods but God. Do not use his name in vain. Now, non-Catholics say you deleted that so that you can have idolatry. <laughs> You purposely, your popes, took it out so that you could justify idolatry, to justify its use of statues. No, this is false. Catholics simply group the commandments differently than Protestants. In Exodus 20, chapter 20, verse 2 through 17, we talk about the Ten Commandments. Do you know that God never called on the Ten Commandments? Do you know how many there are? There's actually 14. What? Yeah, God didn't call them the Ten Commandments. 
the Jews did. The Jews, the number 10 was the basis. So God gave 14 prohibitions or 14 imperatives, not prohibitions, but 14 imperatives. And the Jews took those 14 and made them into 10. Now, here's what's fascinating. To arrive at 10, some statements were grouped together. And there's different ways of doing this. Now, the ancient world, in the ancient world, listen to this, this is fascinating to me. Polytheism, meaning many gods, and idolatry were united. The Jewish numbering of the Ten Commandments always grouped together the imperatives, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a graven images. The Jews brought them together because to the Jews, polytheism was the same as idolatry. So they took the first commandment that the Protestants have, have no other gods, and the second commandment, no graven images, and the Jews put them together. So we are actually following the tradition of the Jews. Since there were 14 imperatives, how you put them into 10, which is what they wanted, is up to you in a certain sense, as long as all prohibitions or imperatives are captured. So how do we capture graven images? It's in the first commandment. By having no other gods means you're not going to carve an image and worship it. As soon as you carve another image and worship it, you have another God. You violated the first commandment. This is fascinating to me. And yet no Catholics know this. We sit there with our eyes as like, huh, I don't know. Oh, we do. We did take out worship statues. Boy, you know, I don't think I should be Catholic anymore. We got to know our faith. This is what's important. So the historic Catholic numbering follows the Jewish numbering on this point. So do the Lutherans. I wonder if you knew that. Jews and Christians abbreviate the commandments so they could be numbered, remembered using 10. Again, there's 14. So Jews and Christians did that. For example, Jews, Catholics, and Protestants summarize the Sabbath as Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do you know in the Bible, there's actually four verses on that one. There's four imperatives regarding keeping the holy of the Sabbath day, but we made it one. So we took graven images and the second commandment to the Protestants and made it one in ours. So the Jews, Catholics, and Lutherans abbreviate it. You shall have no other gods. Basically, we follow Augustine. The Protestants followed the Greek fathers. Who's right? Augustine did it one way. The Greek fathers did it another way. We Catholics follow Augustine. The Protestants follow the Greek fathers. Who's to say who's right? As long as they are all encompassed. And we encompassed it in the first commandment. To me, that's how we have to explain it. So this, if we explain this to our kids who are being told at school by their Protestant friends, I can't believe you're Catholic, the Bible doesn't support you. They're like, mom, I don't want to be Catholic anymore. Mom, dad, I'm not going to be Catholic anymore. But mom and dad are like, well, gee, I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> now you know, because you're going back to seminary with us. All right, how about this one? Some anti-Catholics say Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 18 prohibits even making the image of God. If you read that passage, it does. But early on, why was this so? 
early on, Israel was forbidden to make any depictions of God. Why? Because he had not yet revealed himself to them. That prohibition in Deuteronomy is before God revealed himself through Moses. So what the risk was, the pagan culture that surrounded the Jews would mean that the Jews probably would put him as an animal or some kind of object like the sun. So God said, you are not allowed to depict me yet, to depict me yet, because he hadn't yet revealed himself to the Jews. If they would have, they probably would have made him some animal or the sun or something like that. But later God did reveal himself in Daniel 7, 9, even in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit has since revealed himself at the baptism of Jesus, tongues of fire at Pentecost as a dove. The Protestants use these images when drawing pictures, teaching their kids. At the incarnation, God showed mankind an icon of who he was. A baby that grew up to be Jesus. Well, that was Jesus. That's the image of God. Paul said, quote, he is the image. In Greek, that means icon. I-K-O-N. That's the Greek word icon. We use I-C-O-N, meaning image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Paul's basically saying Jesus is an icon. This is why, let's look at our next slide, we have the icon of divine mercy. This is why this icon has it all. Christ is the tangible divine icon of the unseen infinite God. Misericordia Voltus, the face of the Father's mercy. If you could somehow capture the essence of God the Father and capture it and show it, it would be the face of divine mercy, Jesus Christ. We see this. Since God has revealed himself in images, it's not wrong for us to use images to deepen our love for him. All right. The Catholic Church has always condemned idolatry. There is a distinction between thinking a piece of stone or plaster is a god and desiring to visually remember Christ and the saints by gazing upon them. St. Therese used to say she took a picture of Jesus into the chapel. That was how she prayed. She just stared at the picture of Jesus. St. Therese said, and she's a saint, that without the picture, her mind was wandering all over the place. You ever wander in, 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 in prayer? Take a picture. Take the divine mercy image. The making and use of religious icons and statues is biblical. Know your Bible. All right, let's get into holy water. Let's look at our next slide. Holy water. Oh, that's another crazy Catholic thing. All right. Monsignor Charles Pope said the greatest weapons against the devil are the sacraments, St. Michael, the Blessed Mother, and blessed holy water and salt. Hear that again? He said the best weapons against the devil, the sacraments, St. Michael, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and holy water and blessed salt. He said to make sure that your water is blessed with the traditional blessing, since regular holy water is not as effective because its blessing is not preceded by an exorcism. I bet you didn't know that. Holy water that we buy may not be exercised first. Just a simple blessing. He's saying, eh, go back to the traditional blessing. 
But there's no official church teaching saying that one holy water is better than another. This is just tradition, all right? There is no official teaching on that. However, solemnly blessed your holy water. This is what you can get in the, our shrine here. What does that mean, solemnly blessed, Father, just versus a traditional blessing? Solemnly blessed means that there was salt and the salt was exercised. Then it was blessed. Then there is water. The water is exercised. Then the water is blessed. Then they are put together and another prayer of blessing is done upon the combination. You're talking about the demons running for the door when you do all that. Solemnly blessed means the exorcism of the salt, blessing of the salt, exorcism of water, blessing of the water, and then you put them together and say another prayer. <laughs> all right. Some theologians, like Thomas Aquinas said, that you want exorcisms before blessings, especially baptism, because it improves the fruitfulness. Why? Because it gets the demons out of there first. They can't mess with the blessing. Exorcism or not, holy water is still blessed, yes, but the fruitfulness may be increased since the demons who might seek to interfere with it, some of the fruits of the blessing have been sent away. I know some of you are gonna, I'm gonna get the letters, Father, you are so crazy, superstitious, you are crazy. I, I get those letters all the time. I welcome them because that means at least people are listening. And this is the tradition of the church. This is not crazy. This is not insanity. This is not psychological. This is spiritual. This is spiritual warfare. Theological opinion, yes. Official church teaching, no, on the blessed water. But holy water for baptism included salt and chrism. Why? Because there's exorcism in the baptism. And it was blessed using a very thorough wording. You ever hear epiphany water? If you ever get a chance, get epiphany water. So in your local Catholic bookstore, ask if they have epiphany water. I didn't even know what that was before I went to seminary. Epiphany water is considered the most potent of holy water. Why? Because it is blessed once a year on the epiphany with the holy rite that drives out the demons. Exorcism of the water was lengthy. It was more potent. So wherever the rite is used, or whichever rite is used, old or new, salt or no salt, make sure they use the full rite whether it's solemn or not, use the full rite. The rite restricts the blessing of holy water outside of mass, however, to just priests and deacons. Earlier I said, as a baptized Catholic, you can bless certain things. Not this. This is a priest or deacon. All right. What about Lord's water? Some people, some of you have gone to Lord's. Blessings to you. Lord's is approved. Lord's water is not liturgically blessed. What? Father, I thought it was the most powerful. It is not liturgically blessed, holy water. It is, although it can definitely be blessed. If you get Lord's water, you can definitely have it blessed. The healing properties of the spring are supernatural. So there's something powerful there. It's not the minerals or the water or anything in the water that causes the cures and the miracles. It's the act of faith. 
And Mary, through her intercession, we believe has given special healing powers to that water. Not because it comes from the water, because it comes from, not from Mary, but from God. The act of faith using the water of Lourdes, drinking it, bathing in it, seems to coincide with God allowing miracles when there is faith. Remember, Jesus couldn't even work the miracles, as I said before, in the town when there was no faith. When there's faith, we have miracles. Wow, Father, I didn't know this about holy water. Well, it's in the Bible. Really? Yeah, Leviticus. Leviticus prescribed using water to remove uncleanliness, coming into contact with maybe a dead person, menstruation, menstruating for women, childbirth, even leprosy. A person also purified themselves with water before entering the temple. You wonder why we have holy water fonts in churches? Because the Jews, before they entered into the temple, would clean themselves with holy water or blessed water. Before you enter the church, people just file right past the holy water font. Don't do that. You're coming into the temple. The Jews would scrub themselves, purify themselves with the water. At least we can dip our finger in and give ourselves a blessing. In fact, the sign of the cross is also a sacramental. You know what you're doing in the sign of the cross? <laughs> Pay attention. In the sign of the cross, you know what you're doing? You're branding yourself. I always laugh, do we have any cowboys? Because what does a cowboy do? He brands his cattle. They belong to me. That cattle has my brand on it. So that when we die at the end of the world, when, when the sheep and the goats are separated, and all of mankind, the wheat is separated from the chafe, God, the angel, will come to pick up those who belong to God. And when you do the sign of the cross, you're branding yourself. You're branding your soul. I belong to God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're just Think about what it means. This is powerful stuff. In our faith. So, outside the temple was something they called a laver, a bronze basin filled with water for priests to purify. So holy water fonts in churches correspond to that. We purify before entering. We come, we can also use holy water on the way out. Well, Father, if it's only to purify going into church, I don't need it on the way out. Yeah, we use it on the way out too to remind us of our baptism calling to go live the gospel out in the world. And so before you go out of the church, also use the holy water font to purify yourself before going out into the world. It's really, wow, the world is a, world is a really rough place. You know, you might be in peace and you're having no problems in the temple, but go out into the world, you're gonna need that holy water even more. What is it, um, Back in the days I used to watch TV, there was a show called Cheers. And Norm came into the bar one day and he says, it's a dog eat dog world out there and I'm wearing milk bone underwear. <laughs> and that's true. We have to be prepared. So we bless with water. Three reasons. One, a sign of repentance, cleansing of sin like your baptism. Second, a protection from evil. 
When you take holy water and you put it on yourself, you are branding yourself to God, putting a laying of holy water over you. You are protecting yourself from evil. The demons flee at water. Why do the demons hate water? Because water is life. Baptism is life. That's why you find the demons in tombs. Remember in the New Testament, it says the demoniac came out of the tombs. The reason demons are at the tombs is because it's death. There's no water. It's death. Water is life. Also, why did the church fathers go out to the deserts? You ever hear the desert fathers? Why did the church fathers go into the desert? They wanted to take on Satan on his home turf. Satan's turf is the desert. Why? There's no water. Water is life. Satan's about death. So when you take holy water, these are the reasons why the desert and the tombs is where the demons were found in the New Testament. And when you take holy water and you sprinkle it on somebody, ah, if there's a demon, they can't stand it. And so outside, we got to go out. We got to fight this battle. So the second reason is purification from evil. And the third is a reminder of our baptism. John the Baptist, he called all to conversion using a ritual washing. He just didn't throw the water on you. John the Baptist used a ritual cleansing with water to signify repentance of sin. So do we. Compare Catholic Catholicism to Protestants and see who follows more the tradition since God's beginning of mankind. All right, we incorporate these into the mass. In the penitential rite, what does the priest do sometimes? We come down with an asperage and we do what? We sprinkle holy water on you. That's part of the rite. We're cleansing penitential rite which is the blessing and sprinkling with holy water. What makes holy water holy is that it's blessed. This is what we need. It's not superstitious. And using sacramentals is not superstitious. We're following the examples of Jesus. How, Father? By being baptized. What did Jesus do? He blessed the water. Jesus didn't need baptism. Why did he baptize? If Jesus didn't need to be baptized, why did he have John baptism? And John even said, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, do it. Why? Because Jesus being baptized blessed the waters. He blessed the waters for all of our baptisms to come. And he used material things to bless the people. We talked about the woman in the hem of the garment that was hemorrhaging. She wasn't cured till she touched the garment. John chapter 9, 6, Jesus mixed saliva with dirt and put it over the eyes of the blind man and told him to go and wash. Why didn't Jesus just go, you're healed? He gave us form and matter what the sacraments are, material, and he used healing through that. Let's look at our next slide. This is an interesting statement from Old Testament, Numbers 5:17. Listen to this. And the priest shall take holy water. It says this in the Bible. In an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. This is biblical. All right, we're cruising right along. Emptying or covering holy water fonts during Lent. Does your church do that? <sighs> more of a modern innovation. It's a modern innovation. Water is always kept in the holy water fonts, but some churches will take it out after the mass on Holy Thursday and empty it. Then they will refill it with water blessed at the Easter vigil. Here's the thing. 
You can still replace it with the water of the Easter Vigil, but you don't have to keep them empty. Lent is a time we need the spiritual benefits of holy water and the protection of evil. They shouldn't be emptied. Does adding, you know, and, and a lot of people don't get that. They think, well, wait a minute, we're switching water. Yeah, but you don't have to keep them empty or fill sand. That's not right. If your church is doing that, you might want to respectfully mention that. All right, what about, okay, here's another one. You're running out of holy water and you want more. Can you just add water? Can you just like add water to the holy water to make more holy water? All right, here's the rule on that. Does adding water to already blessed water make the added water holy? Yes, as long as the amount of water added, it does not equal the amount of half of the holy water. In other words, as long as the water added to the holy water does not amount to half of the amount of the holy water. So you can add some. And if adding holy water to a bucket of regular water, it has to be more than 50% of the combined water. So it doesn't take long. Just have the priest bless it. All right, let's talk about candles. This is a Catholic favorite. Let's look at our next slide. Votive candles. Y'all see that picture? Y'all seen this at your churches? The row of candles. <clears throat> we have them here at our shrine. All right, I'm going to steal from Father William Saunders, who did a really good report on this. He said, in Judaism, perpetual light was burning in the temple to show the presence of God. That's why we have a burning candle always next to a tabernacle that has the Blessed Sacrament. Because it shows the presence of God. We're following Jewish tradition. We have a lit candle near the tabernacle. The Torah and other writings in sacred scripture where they were stored would have a light to show the presence of the Word of God. So Christians adapted the use of lit candles for liturgical things, masses, funerals. Why? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He didn't say I'm the wind of the world. That's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the light of the world. No follower of mine shall ever walk in darkness. So light is a symbol of faith, truth, wisdom, virtue, grace, divine life, charity, prayer, sacred uh, penance, all of that comes from Jesus. Sacred presence, not penance. Sacred presence. This all comes from God. All right. We should then recognize the, the good thing of votive candles. Now, here's interesting. Father, why did the Catholics just make this up? The early Christians from the earliest times would light a candle before a saint or sacred image. There is evidence that lit candles were burned at the tombs of the saints, especially martyrs, centuries ago, to the time of Christ. There's also lit candles before sacred images and relics. St. Jerome tells us this. So we're too good for what the early church did we can't do? Nah. Do not worship the statue or the image. We know this. We worship what it represents. You guys all know that. With the light of faith, we petition our Lord in prayer or a saint to pray for us. Beeswax. Why do we have beeswax? Beeswax symbolizes purity. Beeswax means it's pure wax. There's no impurities in it. 
Why do our candles need to be beeswax? I did a whole other talk before on the three days of darkness candle. I can't do that now, but you can see it up on my end times talk. The, the beeswax is pure. It represents the purity of Christ. What does the wick represent? The human soul of Jesus. That's what was lit on fire, lit. The light is his divinity mixed with the wick, his humanity. So you have the wick. All right, so the beeswax candle represents purity. The wick in the candle represents Jesus' humanity. Then the flame in lighted, or is that a word, enlightened, lit? That human soul of Jesus with his divinity. So you have the, tr the, 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 the incarnation in that candle. The wick is the human soul of Jesus. The flame, the light is his divinity. Put them together, they're inseparable. The light burns around that wick. This, trust me, the church knows what she's doing. She's not going to give you some pagan piece of thing to worship another god. But this is what we're told. So let's look at this. These are some powerful things. All right, the symbolism reminds us that in prayer, we are coming into the light of Christ, allowing our souls to be filled like his with light. So when we come before the candle, we're asking God to do the same thing to us. Lord, I'm just this wicked wick. <laughs> I just thought of that. But we are a wicked wick. Enlighten me and flame me with the fire of your divine love. And letting that light burn in our souls, even though we may have to go back out into this dog-eat-dog -dog world. What about the crucifix? Well, Father, every Christian believes in crucifix. No, 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 no. Protestants believe in crosses. But my Jesus ain't on that cross no more. Why do you crazy Catholics still have Jesus on that cross? My Jesus is risen. You ever hear that? I hear it all the time. I don't know if Brother Mark is able to show our image of our crucifix here in the shrine, but you could see in every Catholic church, okay, I don't think he can, but in every Catholic church, you see a crucifix. Now, what is the difference between a cross and a crucifix? I think he's showing the other one. That's fine. Yeah, up here by the altar or over here. But every Catholic church has a crucifix. The difference is a cross is without the corpus, without the body of Christ. A crucifix has the body of Christ. Why, you crazy Catholics, do that? My Jesus is risen. I had a woman in Walmart say, gee, I sure am glad my Jesus ain't on that cross no more. Well, the fact that this world is still suffering and still in pain and you have any agony, Jesus is still suffering. Now, it's not in the sense that he isn't resurrected and he's not in heaven anymore, but he is united with us in his humanity. That's what makes him as a second person of Trinity unique. And so he's mirrored to our human suffering. He went through it. And so when you go to mass, what's the, and you've heard me say this, what's the reason Jesus died on the cross? Because the penalty for sin is death. Jesus had to die. So on the cross, we are showing him paying the penalty for our sin. Well, Father, it's done. No, God is outside of time. When you come to Mass, you are actually present at Calvary while Jesus is paying your penalty, death, for sin. But we're sitting in the back of the church, smacking our gum, looking at our watch, wondering when it's going to be over. You are there at Calvary as Jesus is paying your penalty for sin. 
which is death. You are there. This is not a re recreation. You're there. God is in sacred time. We are in historical time. At the mass, the two come together. Pope Benedict said in Spear of the Liturgy, the roof of the church opens up, the angels and the saints ascend and descend, heaven and earth are united. Like no other time, like no other place. At the mass. This is why people say, I don't need a church. Yeah, if you want to receive the full benefits that you were given in your baptism for eternal salvation, you need the church. Because it is in the church that this roof opens up. Heaven and earth are united. You are present at Calvary. Why in the church? Because the sacrifice that was given to the priests to be able to step in as in persona Christi to sacrifice that gift of God the Son back to God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. You are part of. And on that cross, Jesus is paying your penalty for sin. That's why we Catholics show him on the cross. That is our faith. But the crucifix, all right. What do we do with it then, Father? All right. It should be the first thing placed in your new home before any furnishings. God is the head of your household. This is what you should do. It's a sacramental which recalls the victory of Christ over sin. The sacred season of Lent and Easter is a great time. We turn our gaze and our prayer onto the Holy Cross, the face of God. It's fitting to add the crucifixes in our home into every room. I'll bet most of you maybe have one or two crucifixes. Actually, the church says it's best to have them in every room. Now, it doesn't have to be a big elaborate cross crucifix from Italy, hand-carved marble. It can be just a simple little tiny crucifix. God's presence is there. We should have them in every room if possible. It doesn't even have to be predominantly on the wall. It can be just on the desk. It can be in the closet. This is what is, is powerful. Make sure that the crosses in our house are blessed by a priest. You want that. There is one time when we are most in need of the blessing, and that's when we're going to die. Do you know that there is even a plenary indulgence given for those who hold a cross at the end of their life? So trust me, if you didn't get along with Aunt Emma, and you really didn't know how to say to her or what words to say to her, but you feel obligated to go to the hospital, slip a crucifix into her hand. Say, Aunt Emma, I know we didn't always see eye to eye, and you don't even have to look at me but look at that crucifix. Put it into Aunt Emma's hands. Even if she's not conscious, she doesn't even have to know. The very fact that you put it in her hand, God will give her the conscious ability to accept or reject it when he comes to her. Diary 1486 of St. Faustina. Diary 1698. Jesus tells us this is what happens at the moment of death. So even if you think your loved one is gone, put a crucifix in their hand. There's a, an indulgence for this. We cover the, our crucifixes with purple claws and lent. Why do we do that? To give us a new appreciation of the crucifix when it is uncovered. All right, what about scapulars? I want to finish with scapulars. All right, scapulars. Let's look at our next. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed our slide on the crucifix. Um, Brother Mark, if you didn't show, uh, there's a slide of a, a typical crucifix. Let's go on to our next slide. Okay. Do you ever see a religious walking around, let's say they have a full white habit,
but then they got this brown strip going right down the middle all the way to the ground, like the Carmelite sisters. I don't know if you can see it. You can see it on my screen. Put it up, Brother Mark, if he's got it up. He's showing there is an example of a Carmelite. They're wearing a white habit, but down the middle is a brown strip. That's a scapular. Now, the word scapula means arm, shoulder, and back. So that's what a scapular lays on, the arm, shoulder, and back of the religious. A scapular is consisted of two that we wear as laity, or I wear as a non-habited um, non, uh, religious. We wear clericals <clears throat> here at the Marian Fathers. So I wear a brown scapular. This, I don't know if it's probably too far away to see, but this is the brown scapular that lays over your back with two strips <clears throat> and lays over onto your chest. And you put it under the clothing, and we're gonna talk about that in a minute. Now, it was worn over the habit of the monks or nuns, but then in the Middle Ages, the scapular was modified by use for lay people. So you laity then began to wear it as an outward sign of their participation in the spiritual life of a particular religious order like the Carmelites. Now, many times such association is called a confraternity. We have a confraternity of the Immaculate Conception here at the Marian Fathers. So this confraternity is one way. <clears throat> it's a sign that you belong and you are in spiritual union with a particular religious order. So if you feel really connected to the Marian Fathers, you belong to the Association of Marian Helpers or the Confraternity of the Immaculate Conception. Now, a priest from that order would then invest you into the confraternity or the association. Now, at first people wore a scapular, as I said, over their clothing. However, over time, showing piety became more important by discreetly putting it under their clothing more in humility, not walking around like the Pharisees with phylacteries, uh, uh, <laughs> the things that they used to wear on their forehead announcing that they were these holy men of God. Now, wearing the scapular doesn't just mean you physically put it on and everything's fine. It means wearing it as a way of life. It is putting on the new man. <clears throat> This is what we have to do when we fill our lives with these sacramentals. All right, we're getting close here. <clears throat> now, I want to quote from the Directory on Popular Piety and the Liturgy, the Brown Scapular and other scapulars. It's a pious practice, the council said, to by the magisterium to wear scapulars. The scapular is imposed by a special rite of the church which describes it as, quote, a reminder in the, that in baptism, we have been clothed in Christ with the assistance of the Blessed Virgin Mary that we may come to our heavenly home wearing our nuptial garb. Isn't that interesting? You want to know what you wear in heaven? I always was told, well, Father, or asked, Father, what clothes do we have in heaven? Are we going to be walking around naked? You're going to be in your nuptial garb. And your nuptial means marriage. Garb includes the scapular. That's powerful. Now let's look at our next slide. Here's a picture of the brown scapular that I just showed you that I'm wearing. 
The brown scapular has been reduced. It's a reduced form of the Carmelite full scapular that you see nuns or priests wear. Instead of the full length wool, they take a little piece of the cloth. As I said, they take a little piece of the cloth as you see on your screen and it's made of wool and it's cut into a little triangle or a, a rectangle. And so we have this brown scapula that represents the habit of Carmelites. They, why do we do this? Because the Carmelites entrust themselves to Mary's protection and to have recourse to her intercession. It's not some salvific lucky charm. All right. It's, this is what people accuse us Catholics. The church teaches that the Carmelites agree to this, that one cannot just wear this and live any kind of decrepit life they want. You know, I saw these gangsters. There was a, a thing on YouTube about these um, gangsters in L.A. that were now all wearing rosaries around their neck. Hey, that's a start, right? But they were wearing rosaries and going out onto drug uh, um, uh, uh, fights and, and everything because shooting each other because they thought, well, okay, maybe this would be some power in this rosary that maybe I won't go to hell. Well, you're living the life of a drug runner. You're doing everything that is against church teaching. You are probably not going to church. You're probably not going to confession, but you think you're going to put that around your neck and go to heaven. Be a little careful there. I'm not saying that you shouldn't honor the rosary or what it represents, but what I'm saying is it's not a magic wand. It's not a rabbit's foot. We have to look at what we have to live. So the church says, and the Carmelites agree, that one must persevere to the end to be saved, and that all salvation comes from Jesus Christ, not through the scapular, through his church. But the church has the authority to say, this sacramental will open you up to receive the grace of the sacraments. So in other words, this is the key to your heart. This little thing here laid over the heart is like a key. In order to fill your heart with God, you got to open the door. Now, the scapular isn't the grace that's going to get you to heaven, but it's a key that you can open your heart, and then that heart can be filled with the grace of God. That's the power of it. Not that it's some superstitious, paganistic relic of some kind of pagan God. It's a key. Now, wearing the scapular faithfully is meant as a reminder to aid this cause. So the church came out with a right for the blessing and enrollment of the scapular approved by the Holy See in 1996. And it says that any priest or deacon that has faculties for blessing can bless the scapular. They don't have to be a Carmelite now. It is necessary to be able to have the priest do it, but do you have to be part of their confraternity? No, you can get the scapular. It would be good if you were part, but you don't have to be. Now, <clears throat> those who wear the scapular out of devotion, practice spirituality, such as that as the Carmelites, but have no association with, their, uh, with the Carmelite order or their confraternity, still can open up their heart to grace. So what do the Carmelites teach? All right, the Carmelites teach that the scapular offered, offers a rich tradition that honors Mary, and they are pointing to her as the first disciple. 
So the first disciple being Mary, she gives the example. Let's look at our next slide. Now, where did this all begin? It started with Mary's promise to an early Carmelite named St. Simon Stock that anyone who remains faithful to the vocation like the Carmelites until death will be granted the grace of final perseverance. That means heaven. Now, the Carmelite order was anxious to share this protection with those who are devoted to Mary and they extended it, this their habit, this is the cloth habit or the scapular of the Carmelites to the whole church. They wanted to share this. Remember, oh, well, Father, this is just private revelation. Yeah, but remember, private revelation does not add or detract from the deposit of faith. So if private revelation is approved by the church, it supports the deposit of the faith. So here's the thing. The brown scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, and the reason I'm doing this talk is because Our Lady of Mount Carmel is next Friday. July 16th, is it? Now, this echoes the promise of divine revelation. The one who holds out to the end is the one who will see salvation. Matthew 24, 13. And remain faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2, 10. So it's not a magic wand. It's not a rabbit's foot. There is no salvation for anyone other than Christ. This is why all of you, God bless you, who wrote to me and said, how dare you do that talk? My point of the talk on Islam was to bring people to Christ. Not some false ecumenism. It's to bring people to Jesus. The sacraments mediate this saving grace because Christ instituted the sacraments. The sacramentals, including the scapular, they help get you prepared for the sacraments. They do not mediate like the sacraments, but prepare us to receive the grace to cooperate with the sacraments. All right, we're wrapping up here. Simply wearing this brown scapular does not guarantee salvation. That I can just go live the life I want to live? No. One who wears a scapular should be certain to reflect on the teachings of the gospel, even the Carmelite order. You know, there's three Carmelites that are doctors, Teresa of Avila, Therese of Lisieux, and John of the Cross. They're good. All right, so here's the basic thing the Carmelites tell us. Carmelite spirituality, if somebody says, well, Father, if I want to wear the scapular and I want to join with Carmelite spirituality, what is it? It's very simple. Listen to this. Frequent participation at Mass, reception of Holy Communion, frequent reading of and meditating on the Gospels, praying for at least part of the Liturgy of the Hours, if you can, imitation and devotion to Mary, the practice of the virtues, chastity and charity especially, and obedience to the will of God. We should all be doing that anyway. You want to be united to the Mount Carmel and the, and the scapular? Do those things, but you should be doing them anyway. There's no surprises there. All right, next slide. What is the official status of the Sabbatine privilege? Father, what's the Sabbatine privilege? All right. Tradition says that if you die wearing the scapula on the first Saturday after your death, Mary's intercession will release you from purgatory into heaven. Now, 
That's the picture that you see on your screen. That is the Sabbatine privilege. However, in 1613, the Holy See wrote a decree saying that the Sabbatine privilege didn't have historical evidence. But the church did continue to say Mary can aid us through intercession, especially on Saturdays. That's her day. Now, the tradition of the church has approved this vision as an acceptable cult, but that does not authenticate it as historical because, remember, the Blessed Virgin Mary no longer lives in historical time. She lives in eternity. Since her dormition, Mary is beyond the realm of history. So the point is, yeah, some people question the authenticity or the historical proof of Simon's stock and this vision and the scapular. In fact, I was kind of surprised. Father Richard Copsey of the Carmelites actually have written against it. Now, here's the thing. There are very few surviving documents from the third century that record the history of the Carmelites. So just because it doesn't exist doesn't mean it isn't true. We simply do not know enough about the three Simons. People will call, people will say, well, there were three St. Simons, so we don't know who it was. Well, you know what? No one seems to know about the vision. Yes, this is true until the 14th century, which was after it happened. But again, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Some argue that the stories were passed down verbally and then written down. That's what I believe. I believe personally that it was passed down verbally and then written down. So this is important. All this does not mean that they aren't without meaning. The belief is protection of Mary. Over the years, the popes have been encouraging to wear the brown scapular. Well, but Father, that doesn't, they didn't say it infallibly. True. Papal infallibility pertains to faith, doctrine, and morals. It does not pertain to historical events or science. True. Once enrolled, though, there's a lot of grace. And if it is once enrolled, it's for life. You don't have to keep getting re-enrolled. If your scapular goes bad or you lose it or it gets dirty, you can simply get a new one blessed and put it on. You don't have to be re-enrolled. And so this is, this is important. Now, one does not have to be a member of the confraternity, as I said, to wear it. Any member of the faithful can wear it. Many miracles have been reported. Now, I want to wrap up here by saying a few couple things. First of all, does it have to be made of wool? All right. It did at one time. It no longer has to be because the Carmelite religious don't even wear pure wool now. Um, and their habits because expenses and impractical and, and heat and stuff. And so, oh, sister, hello. This is a beautiful sister that joins us every once in a while. God bless you, sister. Thank you for coming. I just had to say hello. The most authentic form of the scapular is two pieces of brown wool. And you know what? Most of them have a mark on them or a picture of Our Lady, but they don't have to. Actually, the most authentic ones are just plain brown cloth or maybe just a cross on them. The scapular is either with nothing or just a very small cross. Now, let's look at our next slide. What about a scapular medal? Is that allowed? It is now. The medal can be worn in place of the cloth if you have like allergies to your skin or abrasions. For good reason, you can wear it. It's not preferred, but it does work. Now, I recommend that you get enrolled with the wool, and then if you can't wear the wool, then replace it with the metal later. Now, I want to finish with a couple other scapulars, and then we're done. 
Let's talk about the next one on our screen, the blue scapular. The blue scapular is fascinating because it's from us Marian fathers. Now, I don't want to get into a whole talk on it now because it's its the own topic. So I'm just going to lightly touch on it, but I'm going to come back later and do a talk on the blue scapular because that's united to us Marian fathers. Now, we got that permission to promote it through the Theotin fathers. And the Marians recognize that we are obligated to spread the Immaculate Conception. So this meaning is what it is in the blue scapular. So you know what the blue scapular is? Mary's mantle. It is believed that Mary wore a blue mantle. She appears in visions with a blue mantle. The blue scapular is a piece of that mantle of Mary. Like this is a piece of the Carmelite habit. The blue scapular is a piece of the mantle of Mary. In fact, that's the one to me that should be worn so that we can be like Mary. Mystically, it is possible to consider the, the scapular as a piece of her veil received from her hands and ensuring her protection to those who wear it and desire to be like her. So again, I'm going to talk to you about that in another talk. Okay, I'm going to give you the next one. Look at your screen. I call this the Father Dan Cambra scapular. It's the five-fold scapular. Look on your screen. It looks like a deck of cards. The blue scapular, I'm sorry, what makes up the five-fold uh, five scapular is the red scapular of the passion, the blue scapular, the Immaculate Conception that I just told you about, the brown scapular that we've been talking about of Our Lady Mount Carmel, the black scapular of the Passion, and the white scapular of the Most Holy Trinity. You want it all? Get the five-fold scapular. You can get it, all of these on our websites, on our, 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 I'll show you in a minute, but you can get them online. And then finally, last one is the green scapular. Let's take a look at the green scapular on your screen. Father Kazel was here a couple days ago from Minnesota, and I laugh because he's the priest I told you about that does the hit and run with the green scapular. All right, now, here's this green scapular. It's the scapular for everyone. Now, I want to tell you about this. In an apparition of Sister Justine Bosquet-Boro, the daughter of charity in the early 1840s in Paris, on September the 8th, Our Lady's feast day, or uh, birthday, Mary appeared holding in her hand her immaculate heart mounted in flames and holding in her other hand a scapular. Now, I want to tell you about this. The scapular consisted of a piece of green cloth at that time hanging from a green string. Notice there's only one. Now, here's what's important. On one side is the image of Mary dressed in a long white gown, which is reached to her bare feet. I know Brother Mark has it up on, if you can put it back on the screen. I know it's small, but if you can see it. On the one side is Mary's image where she is dressed in a long garment, a long white gown, which is reaches her bare feet. On the other side, she wears, she has her mantle on, but she wears no veil. Now, not on this particular one, they're different. Let's go back to the other one. She has no veil. Instead, her hair is flowing down, and in her hands, she holds her heart. That's two different versions, and I'm sorry, I, I jumped onto the other one. This one, then, has a flip side. The scapular shows on the other side a pierced immaculate heart. 
This heart is pierced with a sword and then encircled by an inscription in the form of an oval topped by a golden cross. Okay, so if Brother Mark could put that back on, I know it's really small. You might not be able to see it. But this cross on top. Now, the words, Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Now, why is this important? All right, Mary said that this scapular is not like others. Now, Father Kazel takes the ones without a cloth. There are some green scapulars that are just the triangle. They're not connected to a string. They just look like, like a triangle of, or I'm saying triangle, a um, rectangle. And Mary said this scapular is different than every other. And so Father Kazel takes them without the string and he just passes around these little tiny rectangular cloths and hands them to people. And people are intrigued. Now, why does Mary say that it's like no others? Because it's not based on a religious habit or her veil. There's no special formula required to bless it. And there's no enrollment of someone into a confraternity. It's just a simple, beautiful scapular. It suffices that it be blessed by a priest, though, and worn by one whom desires to benefit from it. Now, here's what's fascinating. If the person is unable to receive it or pray the prayer, because maybe they're not Catholic, maybe they don't believe yet, the scapular may be kept near them. Mary's prayer is put it near an unbeliever and the graces will reach them. So I had ladies write to me that they put it under their husband's mattress. Isn't that awesome? So take it, now don't cause family divorce here, but you could take just the little rectangle and Mary says, place it nearby. So put it under the chair. If he sits on the chair to watch the game, put it under the mattress that he sleeps on. And then when it comes to flip the mattress someday, just make sure you pull it out before, or maybe let him see it. But this is the beautiful thing of this. It's used for anyone, anywhere. And the graces are abundant. If the person who is intended to receive the graces does not say the prayer, you can say it for them. This is intercession. This is beautiful. All right, last page. Miraculous changes have been reported through this, especially in public places like work environments. That one short prayer, if you say it once a day, this is what Mary promises, that you want graces for your loved one that refuses to wear it, refuses to get near a church or anything. You place the scapular somewhere near them, even if they don't know, and you say that prayer once a day. What is the prayer? It's on the scapular. Immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Notice us, not me. You're talking about your loved one. That short prayer said once a day, as often as you can, is encouraged. And those who were on the verge, for instance, of suicide were reported that they were given the wisdom to understand why they were so miserable. 
and the strength to make the changes necessary to bring true happiness and hope back into their lives. That's powerful. So get a green scapular. Very good stuff. People involved in dangerous relationships have been reported as saying that they saw changes in their significant other or the relationship ended. So let's look at another slide. Actually, you know what? Before this, I want to show the video now. We're going to wrap up. It's only a minute and 50 seconds. That basically summarizes everything I've talked to you about here today, but it also talks about how to dispose of sacramentals. Father, what if my rosary breaks? What if my scapular is now dirty and sweaty and I want to replace it? How do you dispose of sacramentals properly? Let's watch this quick little video. A scapular is a sacramental, which covers things that we can see, like crucifixes, rosaries, holy water, holy oil, um, ashes, and also things like blessings and the sign of the cross. The use of sacramentals better prepares us to receive the graces available to us through the sacraments. What sacramentals are not are magic talismans that will protect us from the possibility of physical harm or force God to do our will. It's a physical, touchable, doable thing that reminds us that through the grace of the sacraments, we can bend our will to God's. So the brown scapular isn't magic, but it is a really good reminder. Before you put on a brown scapular for the first time, you should be invested by a priest. Any priest can do it, but a Carmelite priest would be especially happy to do it for Who you. Who has deigned to join you to the confraternity of the Blessed Virgin Mary of Mount Carmel. Amen. Welcome to the family. Congratulations. Once you're invested, you can replace the scapula yourself as needed. But that begs the question of what to do with the old one. Canon law tells us that once an object is blessed, as is often the case with crucifixes, rosaries, and scapulars, they must be given, sold, or donated carefully, or returned to God, either by being buried or burned, and then the ashes buried. We keep a drawer of broken, blessed items, and every so often, the kids will get to burn and or bury them, which is a very popular chore. Okay, so in that video, we saw how you dispose of sacramentals. There's only two ways. You properly burn them. And if there are ashes left, you should bury those ashes. I know most people knows that it's proper to bury them, burn them, but almost nobody knows that if there's significant ashes left, you are supposed to bury the ashes. And secondly, you can just bury it directly. That is the proper way to dispose of sacramentals. People think, well, that doesn't sound right, burning them. Yes, reverently, to properly dispose. Now, I got a few minutes left, so I figure I'll quick jump on the last two, Miraculous Medal and the St. Benedict Cross. Two powerful sacramentals. Let's take a look. You know what, before that though, I wanna mention how you can get all these resources. Uh, Brother Mark, if we could show our slide, shopmercy.org slash Saturday. You can get all of these, the green scapular, the blue scapular, um, the, um, the brown scapular. You can get the things that I've talked about, crucifixes. You could talk about uh, Our Lady Mount Carmel. We have it on there. You can get our books, things like that. But shopmercy.org slash Saturday or call us at 800 
for Marian, M-A-R-I-A-N. Now, let's finish with the miraculous medal and the St. Benedict medal. All right, take a look at your screen. The famous miraculous medal, Mary on one side, the M and the cross on the other. All right, this happened from an apparition of St. Catherine Labouré in France. She was a nun in the 1830s. So what happened was St. Catherine saw Mother Mary. Now, I'm going to have Brother Mark hold this slide up for the entire description. So it's just going to, you're not going to see me. You're going to see this slide, the entire description. St. Catherine saw Mary standing on a half globe with a serpent crushed beneath her feet. So you can see that. Look at your medal. And her hands with rings holding a small globe with a cross on it. Now, before what you see on the image is after she does something. You don't see the globe yet, or uh, the globe is, is not shown on, that, on, the, on, the, on the metal. But that's what she saw. She saw this globe, bright light shone from the jewels that were on Mary's fingers, and suddenly the globe disappeared from Mary's hands, and she opened up her hands outward, and the light from the jewels extended out from her hands, and a semicircle frame appeared around and over her with the inscription in gold. O Mary, conceive without sin, Pray for us who have recourse to thee. This refers to the Immaculate Conception. Conceived without sin. So what you see is Mary's hands now open. The vision then rotated. And on the other side was the letter M. So you see it on your screen with a cross on the M, over the M, and 12 stars. The cross stood on a horizontal bar, so you see the horizontal bar between the M and the cross is on top of it. Under the M were two hearts, you can see, that are engulfed in flames, one in thorns, the other pierced by a sword. This is Jesus and Mary. Then Mary told Catherine, have a metal struck of this model, and those who wear it will receive great graces, especially when they wear it around the neck. Now, meaning that Mary is queen of heaven and earth. So what's the meaning of all this? She crushes Satan under her feet. That's Genesis 3.15. Her arms are open, her hands are open, and the many rays of light are graces that she obtains for those who request them. So you see the graces coming out of Mary's hands. Sometimes we call this Our Lady of Grace. Now, the dark jewels, the ones that are not full of light, represent the graces that are available that people don't ask for. We should never let Mary's graces go unwasted. Well, graces of God through the hands of Mary, because we don't ask for them. On the back of the medal, the 12 stars represent the 12 apostles who represent the church, and it surrounds Mary. As you can see, and the M obviously is for Mary. The cross is the cross of Christ. The symbol is our redemption. The horizontal bar on the M represents the earth. And the placement of the cross on that bar in the letter M shows that Mary's participation in the cross of Christ to help salvation. She's a co-redemptrix and her involvement in our world. The two hearts are those of Jesus and Mary burning with love for us. That's the beautiful, miraculous medal. So thank you, Brother Mark, for showing that. Many miracles have been reported through the medal. That's why they call it the miraculous medal. Many miracles. So wearing it, 
It's discreet, it's simple, and effective to show your devotion to Mary, and it disposes us to receive God's grace. That's what a sacramental does. So that's what we do. St. Maximilian Kolbe, he had especially active involvement with the Miraculous Medal. The Mission Immaculata he formed. All right, now finally, we're gonna wrap up with the St. Benedict Medal. One of the most powerful sacramentals in the church because it involves an exorcism. Don't just have your Benedict medal, and it could be in a cross. It's either a medal by itself or it's in a cross placed in the center. But you just don't do a regular blessing. A priest does an exorcism. Now, let's put it up. Brother Mark, if we can put it up, and I'm going to have him leave it up. This is a powerful medal. Originally, it was a cross dedicated in devotion and honor of St. Benedict. On one side, so let's look at this. On one side of the medal, it bears an image of St. Benedict holding a cross in the right hand and his holy rule of life in the left. On the one side of the image is a cup and the other a raven. You remember the story they tried to poison him and the raven came with the bread and the raven came and took the bread away and then the cup with the poison tried to, um, it shattered and above the cup, the raven, is the inscribed words. Now, what you see on that is Latin. So those Latin means cross of the Holy Father Benedict. Now, around the margin of the medal stands the legend, also in Latin, may we at our death be fortified by his presence. Okay, that's the front of the medal. Now, let's look at the back. The back of the medal bears a cross with the initials of the words. Now, these are just initials for the Latin. The Holy Cross be my light. We talked about light. Written downward on the perpendicular bar, the initials to the letters of the Latin, let not the dragon be my guide. Now, on the horizontal bar, and around the margin stand other letters. Be gone, Satan. Do not suggest to me thy vanities. Evil are the things thou profess. Drink thy own poison. Because remember, he was going to be poisoned. At the top of the cross is usually the word pax, P-A-X, which means peace, or sometimes I-H-S, which are the first three letters of Jesus in Greek. So during, I want to finish with this. They had a witchcraft trial back um, in 1647 at Nottenberg, near the Abbey of Metten in Bavaria. And the accused witch basically testified that she had no power over the monastery that was under the protection of this Benedict cross. And so this is powerful. Now this blessing or this cross requires a special exorcism blessing. So it's one of the most powerful sacramentals you can get. Now, people are probably saying, Father, you didn't really talk about icons and images. I ran out of time. So please join us in the future as I take you back to seminary that we're going to talk about why these things in our Catholic faith are not superstition. They're not idolatry. They are given to us by God. And we talked about associations and confraternities. Brother Mark, if we can show it, please join us. Become a Marian helper. It takes less than 10 seconds. Doesn't cost anything. Just enter in micprayers.org and join us. 
being part of our Marian family. And you too can share in the graces of our rosaries, prayers, penances, everything. God bless you all and keep those sacramentals to open your heart to then receive the grace of the sacraments. That's the point. And may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why be a Marian helper? Because we Marian fathers celebrate a mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits of all the Marian priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Marian priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we see a mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves, but we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. And we members of the Marian Fathers will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the divine mercy. Remember Jesus told St. Faustina that the chaplet of divine mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the shrine of divine mercy, we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you wanna learn more how to be a Marian helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.